Thank you for joining us, and thank you for those of you who are online joining us. We have people watch us from all over the world, parts of the Middle East. Some people watch us uh, over in the metropolis of West Virginia, so we welcome them as well. Um, but anyway, it's always good to hear from you, so keep messaging us and letting us know that you're listening to us. We have family in Texas that started listening to us online. We had no clue. They started supporting, giving to our building. Can you believe that? I mean, this is just how people are, and the Lord brings them in, and we're thankful for them, and thank you for coming today, too. Well, you can read, can't you? (laughs) Now listen, next week, the Lord just happened to work this out, okay? Because next week, we're going to talk about when a man... When a man loves one wife better than the other. Okay, I mean, Old Testament context now, all right? But we are going to talk about love, and we're going to talk about relationships next week. So this series is very practical to life, so uh, I'm going to hurry and get off that, all right? You can thank my wife for that. Anyway, (laughs) the title of today's message is God's Boot Camp. Now, I read an article from a retired Army major... And he, he said five lessons he learned from boot camp, basic training. He said, first of all, he learned the lesson of discipline. Discipline is defined as the practice of training people to obey rules or a code of behavior using punishment to correct disobedience. Ooh, we don't like that, do we? But nevertheless, when you go to the military, they do use punishment to correct the failure of acting properly. And if you don't do things as a team, you run together as a team. Those of you who played football can remember when one person messed up, who paid for it? The whole team. And the coach wasn't doing that necessarily to be mean. He was doing that to teach you that you're in this together. It's not about you. It is a group effort. A second lesson was focus. He says, focus is defined as the state or quality of having or producing clear visual definition. When you get in boot camp, they teach you to do one thing, and you learn to do it well. He also said respect is something that he learned from boot camp. He said, I learned to respect my group, my peers, and most importantly, I learned to respect myself. A lot of trainees at boot camp really had attitude problems. They had a chip on their shoulder, and for some reason... They thought they could uh, talk back to their drill sergeants and get away with it. He said, well, that seldom happened without consequences. But you do learn respect. The fourth lesson, he said he learned teamwork. He said, I learned really early on in boot camp about the importance of teamwork. Almost everything we did in the Army and in life is a team effort. Up to that time, I really worried more about myself and my own needs than anyone else. I realized that the team is only as strong as the weakest person. I learned that the team or the group was more important than me. And I realized that my buddies were counting on me, and I had to carry my own weight as I learned to count on them. And fifth, he said that he learned patriotism. Beginning in boot camp, I really fell in love with my country. I know that might sound a bit weird to some of you, but it's the truth. Listen to what he says. Prior to joining the Army, I never really thought a lot about my country. Most of my thoughts revolved around my own little world, myself, my family, my hometown, my job. 
However, in basic training, I realized how great and big our country really is. I was proud to wear the uniform and be part of something much greater than myself. I was really proud to be an American and even a soldier. But God has to sometimes get us far away from home to teach us lessons like that, doesn't he? Last week, if you were with us, we learned that Jacob had really blown it. And he was running away because the last thing he heard from his brother was, my greatest joy in life is going to be when I kill you. He had done his brother wrong, he had done his father wrong, and now he was running for his life. And last week we learned, what do you do when you blow it and you know you're at fault? Well, what we do is we get on our knees and thank God that he doesn't leave us, even though we blew it. I mean, Jacob is out in the middle of nowhere, out in the wilderness and the desert, and God appears to him, and Jacob sees the steps of heaven. And he falls on his knees, and he erects a pillar, and he says, this is the house of God. God's presence is here, even when I didn't think he was. And then, of course, Jacob tries to bargain with God. You know, God, if you'll do this for me, then I'll do this for you. And God, with tongue in cheek, of course, goes, oh yeah. So now Jacob is off on his own, and that's where we pick up the text this morning. As he wanders from the gate of God or the gate of heaven, now he's going to go into God's boot camp and meet a man named Uncle Laban. And boy, is he going to learn some lessons. Here's the passage outline. We're going to look at it in two sections this morning. First of all, Jacob meets the love of his life, Rachel. This is just a little... Uh, foretaste of next week's Valentine's Day message. And then we're going to meet what, see what happens when he meets his father-in-law, uh, Uncle Laban. And Laban, by the way, is going to teach Jacob some valuable lessons. Are you ready? Good, let's go. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. As he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of that well the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large. And when the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds would roll the stone from the mouth of the well and water the sheep and put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Now let me stop there. I actually was able to go to Moses' well. I have stood over top of it and have pictures of myself being taken there. Wells were dug out in the middle of sand, desert country. There were no sides on them. And a lot of times people would have to have contracts between one another because water was life. And in order to use this well, people either had to pay, there's something they had to do, but they would put such a large stone over the mouth of the well for several reasons. One was to keep people from falling in. Two was to keep people from stealing their water. And three was to keep people from contaminating it. You know, you could take a dead animal, throw it over in a well, poison all the water, and kill everything that drinks from it. So these people would come up with contracts for each other, and they would say, this is our well, we'll all meet here at the same time so that you don't steal more water than I do, and that we'll water together. Trusting, trusting place, right? So nevertheless, this is what happens, and Jacob just so happens to walk up on this well. Just so happened, all right? And Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? And they said, We are from Haran. Jacob says, Ah, Haran. 
That's my mom's land. He said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? Now listen, folks. They said, Oh, we know him. We know him. He said, Is it well with him? They said, Oh, it's well. You You don't have to worry about Laban. He can take care of himself. It's well. And then they said, And see, there's Rachel, his daughter, coming with the sheep. And he said, Behold, it's still high day. It's not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go and pasture them. But they said, We cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, by the way, notice how many times the word mother is used here, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Are y'all getting the point? There's a connection here. Family ties. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. Now, guys, you all can relate here, can't you? Anytime a pretty girl came around and you were outside working somewhere and she, you saw her and she was watching, you know how you, you puffed your muscles up and became really strong or whatever. Now, this is Jacob. I mean, you know, now clearly God is with him because he does what it takes three groups of shepherds or shepherdesses to do. I mean, he sees this pretty girl and he gets all excited and he's strong and he, he lifts and moves the rock by himself. Kind of fascinating. Then Jacob kissed Rachel, and he wept aloud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was his, her father's kinsman, and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him, and kissed him, and brought him to his house. And Jacob told Laban all these things. And Laban said to him, Surely you are bone of my bone and and my flesh. And he stayed with him a whole month. I mean, the greetings from the great uncle. Everything's going great. Jacob's found his home. He's out in the middle of the wilderness, and now God leads him to this beautiful girl he hopes to marry, and her father is nice to him. I mean, how much better can it get than that, right? Things are going well. But now... Uncle Laban's going to teach Jacob a lesson about life. And by the way, behind it all was nobody else other than God. God is the actor in this story. Now watch what happens. Now you've got to get the picture. Here's Jacob sitting around staring at Rachel probably. Probably gets the game system and the direct TV and watching Sunday football. Everything's going well, you know. Going in the refrigerator, getting whatever snacks he wants. Laban said to Jacob, Because you're my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? I mean, Laban says, Work? Who said anything about work? Uh, what, what are you talking about? Laban says, Well, you're not going to just stay around here for nothing. You shouldn't serve me for just anything. Now, by the way, he knew Jacob had eyes for Rachel. Laban was a businessman. He knew exactly how to work a deal, and he also knew how to come out on top. And he knew how to give Jacob just enough rope to let him get to the end where when Laban tightened the noose, 
He had him right where he wanted him. He let Jacob fall in love. And then he says, Should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban, by the way, anytime you see that word now in your Genesis passages or even in Exodus, you better pay attention. That's a marker saying, here's some information you need. Now, Laban had not just one, but two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak. Now, that's a very nice way in the Hebrew language for saying, how do I word this? She was ordinary. Okay? I don't want to say ugly or you'll, you'll think that I'm being mean. But her eyes were weak. Baggy eyes. Something about her was not attractive. However, notice the, notice the comparison here that the author gives between Leah and her sister Rachel. The older was Leah and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form <laughs> and in appearance. Okay? In other words, she was physically attractive to the eyes. And by the way, in pre-marriage counseling and marriage counseling and so forth, one of the things that we actually tell people, believe it or not, you know, you hear people say this all the time, it doesn't matter what they look like. Oh, come on. <laughs> I mean, let's get rid of all that nonsense. She better be beautiful to you, and he had better be handsome to you. Now, maybe not to anybody else, but to you, she should be beautiful. She should be the most beautiful woman that you know. So this is what caught Jacob's eye. She was beautiful in form and appearance, and Jacob loved Rachel. And he said, I will serve you, you ready guys? Seven years for your younger daughter Rachel. And Laban said, you got a deal. It's better that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. Now, I need to give you a little bit of background. A bridal price. Back in the day, whenever a man agreed to sell his daughter or to allow her to be married to someone else, she had to have some kind of backup in, in case this guy decided to run off with somebody else, in case he was killed, there was no Social Security, there was no pension. So this bridal price was paid. Usually, a shepherd made about 10 shekels a year. So Jacob here is offering how many shekels? 70. What was the usual bridal price? About 40. I mean, he's paying a hefty sum for Rachel. Three more years than the average person would pay. Now, you know Laban, well, he, he jumped all over that. And Jacob was satisfied with it, as we're going to see in a moment. It wasn't a big deal to him. So he's going to give almost double what the normal average person would give. So he is investing a lot of his life on this woman who he loves. So it's better for, that I give her to you than I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel. Notice this love line here. And they seemed to him but a few days because of his love for her. Isn't that a wonderful romantic line? I mean... He just worked and every day he went out. He didn't even think about it because all he could think about was Rachel. Oh, how I love her. Who cares about the sweat, pulling the thistles, walking in the heat of the day? Who cares about any of that? 
Look at my love and my life. I just can't wait. So all of a sudden, seven years pass, okay? Seven years are gone. Now we pick back up in the narrative. Jacob said to Laban, and by the way, you know he was counting every day on the calendar, right? Give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place, and he made a feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. I'll come back to that in a later message. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah! I mean, you know, the text says he, he wakes up in the morning and it was her. Now, I know what you're asking. How can anybody ever go into a tent and marry a wife and not even know who it was? you want me to help you a little bit? I mean, Jacob had been working for seven years, and all he had on his mind for seven years was his romantic relationship with Leah. And, Jake, and you know, Uncle Laban's no fool. He gave a party. Sometimes they last for two or three days. Sometimes they last up to seven days. There can be a lot of drinking goes on then. Now, I know we try to make all the Bible characters seem so moral, and we would never think that they would ever do anything that would, you know, be opposite of our culture. But let me assure you, they took many, many drinks of wine during those days. And it's not at all uncommon for someone to drink way too much in excess. It's not anything uncommon for this, per, perhaps this woman to be brought in at just the right time. I mean, there's all kinds of things we don't know. But what we do know is Jacob slept with Leah. And he didn't sleep with Rachel. And when he woke up in the morning, behold, I mean, can you imagine... It was Leah. Now what's he going to do? And he gets up out of the bed, and this is what he says. What is this you have done to me? Did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Now, does this sound familiar to you? Do you all remember the story of Jacob and his father? Are you my oldest son Esau? Sure I'm Esau, Dad. Come on. Are you the older or the younger? Yes, I am. The great reversal's happening here. You see, God's taking Jacob to boot camp and he's teaching him some lessons about life. And one of the great lessons is this. You won't sin and get away with it and think that you will. God will catch us in our craftiness. We'll talk about that in a moment. Did I not serve you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? Notice what Laban says. Boy, can't you hear him now? Boy, it's not done that way in our country. I don't know how you all do it back in your home. We don't do it that way here. To give the younger before the firstborn. Now don't you know that those words burnt in Jacob's heart like a hot searing iron. You don't get the younger before you take the older. Now, you know that Jacob was sitting there going, Oh, Lord, here it goes again. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me. Get ready, another seven years. Jacob did so and completed her week, 
And then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Billah to his daughter Rachel to be his servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. Now next week I'm going to talk about Leah, and I'm going to teach you a lesson or some lessons on how God looks at the unfavored. And by the way, it's a good lesson to learn about our God because he's so much unlike us. God, God is a, a mysterious God, and he works in ways that we cannot imagine. And just to give you a little spoiler alert, he blesses the one that no one else thinks he should bless. But more on that next week. Okay, what are some lessons that we can learn from this account of God taking Jacob to boot camp, okay? So here are just a few lessons that I want to share with you. First of all, did you know that life for God's child almost never turns out as you expect? Life for God's child almost never turns out as you expect. After Jacob fled and God promised his blessing and protection, Jacob thought everything was wonderful. Everything aligned perfectly as it should. Think about this. He found a group of shepherds. They knew his uncle Laban. He saw Rachel. She was drop-dead gorgeous. He was able to help her. She invited him home. Laban was kind and welcomed him, and Laban was willing to put him to work. Everything was just like it should have been, right? Life is absolutely perfect. And all of a sudden, in the blink of an eye, uh, life changes. And he didn't get what he bargained for. And isn't that true in our life? Life doesn't turn out like we expected either, does it? I mean, let's be real. Unexpected death of loved ones. Loss of health. Loss of a job. Relationship problems. Divorce. Abused or battered children. Addiction in the family. Rebellious children who you can't control. Or mental health trauma that you can't explain and can't undo. But here's the big question. Are you ready? Here's the big question. When we as God's children who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our, of our sin and for eternal life, when those of us who know Jesus as our Savior get hit like this in life, how will we respond? When life doesn't go our way, how will we respond? Will we keep walking in faith and trusting God that even though life gets hard and we can't explain what's happening, that we're going to walk with Him even though we can't see the next step in front of us? Or are we going to get bitter and hard and go ahead and prejudge God and tell God He's not good and tell God He doesn't know what He's doing in our life and get angry and run the other way? You see, boot camp is a test. God uses life as a test. God uses circumstances in our life as a test. What are we going to do when life doesn't turn out our way? And let me assure you something, folks. If you know Christ as your Savior and you're a Christian, let me help you out this morning. Life probably, probably will not go the way you think it will. Probably won't. Because this is how God uses our life. You know, God doesn't always take us in a straight line from easy path A to easy path B. 
Sometimes God takes us down the hills, down the hollers. Sometimes God takes us down in the dark caverns of life where we think nobody should ever have to go. But God's map for your life sometimes goes down in those dreaded places to teach us lessons about him, about life, about others, about humility, about dependence on other people besides ourselves, dependence upon God. Sometimes God takes us places that we don't like to teach us things that we desperately need to know. Well, that's the first issue that Jacob had to deal with. He had to learn to trust God even when life didn't go his way. I would like to have interviewed Jacob after he had married Leah, wouldn't you? Just to hear his disappointment and what he expected and how he thought life would go. But nevertheless, I'm sure we know enough to know that was not easy. The second lesson that we learn from God's boot camp is sometimes God's greatest blessings come through trials, not ease. God's greatest blessings come through trials, not ease. Now, I think this is fairly self-explanatory. But here is kind of a quote that I kind of tweaked a little bit. Blessings hidden in every trial. Blessings are hidden in every trial, but must, we must open our hearts and have eyes of faith to see them. In other words, sometimes things happen in our life, but behind every trial, there's usually a blessing if we can see it. Karen and I were in Bible college over 20-some years ago. We took a step of faith, left Christiansburg, went to a little tiny Bible college and moved from our house into a little one-bedroom apartment in the city streets of Winston-Salem. Oftentimes, I would sit outside my window and watch drug deals right in front of the street in front of me. I am not kidding you. Uh, this is back in the day of Polaroid cameras when you could snap the camera and it would flash. And uh, Anyway, that's just how it happened. Well, we had sold all of our stuff and we had bought this car and I was thinking to myself, you know, this car will get us through Bible college while I don't have a job and I'll be able to get through school. Well, it was parked right outside of our apartment on Green Street. You all remember that, Greg and Sharon? You might even remember this incident. One night about 2 o'clock in the morning, Karen and I were laying in bed and we heard this big crash. I got up and looked out the window, and lo and behold, someone in a truck had ran off the road and nailed right straight into our car. Now, what I didn't tell you was, the day before that, I was driving from somewhere, coming back to our home, and the transmission in our car started slipping. I mean, I was going up a hill, and it started... I was thinking, oh, no, I'd already called the transmission shop, $2,500. And I'm thinking, oh, my gracious, what am I going to do? I just parked it beside the road and thought, okay... God will let me know some way. That night, that night, okay, a drunk driver hit my car. And not only mine, he got every Bible college student's car through there. I, I was able to stand in the window and watch him hit mine. His front axle broke so the car could only go one way. He was trying to get away. So he went down through there and hit every Bible student's car. Old junky cars, you know. I mean, all of them. Bible college students are usually broke. I, and he beat every one of them to death. Lo and behold, he was captured, and the other person's insurance ended up paying for all the cars. That wasn't pleasant while we were going through it, but did you know behind that there was a hidden blessing? And usually the same thing is true in our life. 
You know, Brian is probably home with his mom right now. She's probably in her last days. And, you know, he's having to take care of her. Those, those are valuable times and valuable lessons in our life. We, we learn the frailty of life. You're sitting there looking at the hands that took care of you. Now you have a chance to take care of them. They're tender, sweet moments. But they're moments where we learn valuable, precious lessons in life, don't we? It's not that it's easy, it's hard. However, in the midst of that, God teaches us great things. And sometimes His greatest blessings come out of really hard and difficult circumstances. There's a third lesson that we learn, and that is that God uses circumstances to shape us. Now, clearly God was behind the circumstances of all of Jacob's life. Okay, however, he must have thought it was all well since everything lined up. However, God was lining up events to shape Jacob's life into the person that he wanted him to be. Do you realize from the time Jacob left home, it would be over 20 years before he was able to go back? 20 years. And God was going to teach him some very valuable lessons through circumstances in his life. But here's the fourth lesson I want to share with you, and that is God uses the consequences of our sin to train us. You know, everything, as I said, was looking up for Jacob. His past was behind him, lying to his father, deceiving his brother. Laban had now welcomed him, called him bone of my bone. Everything is well, and it appears he has escaped from everything. But as one author said, God never lets us sin and walk away from it with no consequences. It is true, God will remove the eternal penalty of our sin when we trust Jesus Christ for our salvation. But he does not take away the consequences in this life. He doesn't remove these consequences for a reason. And what is that reason? He wants us to learn from our sins so that we don't repeat them again. Did you hear that? God will he'll remove the wrath from our sin but he does not remove the memory or the consequences. In other words, he lets it hang there so that we remember what sin felt like, tasted like, and we experienced. He lets us remember that for a very significant reason. And somebody wrote something, and I wanted to read this to you. Listen to what this man said. Finally, Jacob's seven years are up. He has to remind Laban of that fact. You can be sure both men were counting for different reasons. However, at this point, the deceiver becomes the deceived. He has now met his match in Laban. There are obvious parallels between Jacob's deception of Isaac and Laban's deception of Jacob. Jacob deceived his blind father. Now he gets his blind wife. He gets blinded uh, in the middle of the night with his wife. He deceived his father. He is deceived by his bride's father. He cheated his brother out of the rights of the firstborn, and now he gets cheated because of the rights of the firstborn has to be married first. So the deceiver has met his match. Jacob's reaping doesn't end here. Laban later would take advantage of him by changing his wages some many times. And even as Jacob had taken advantage of Esau with his birthright. Jacob deceived his father with regard to his favorite son, Esau, by covering his hands with goat skins. 
Jacob would later be deceived by his sons regarding his favorite son, Joseph, when they dipped his robes in the blood of a goat. Jacob had sown deception, he would reap deception. And God used the consequences of sin to shape his people. He does. God uses the consequences of our sin to shape us. Now, by the way, we do have hope in Jesus, don't we? You know, Greg was talking about that this morning. Thank God for that. I mean, thank God we don't just have to wallow the rest of our life in the consequences for our sin. God doesn't want us wallowing in them, but he doesn't want us forgetting them. God always keeps our sin and their consequences ever before us as a constant reminder of what it means to walk with him and then what it means not to. So there's valuable, valuable lessons here in the parallels between Jacob's life and what he learned and what we can learn. And by the way, we could get very personal here this morning. I'm sure if we took time to go through every person in this congregation, you could at least share some things that you've done really bad. That if you close your eyes and you think about them, they still kind of sit there with you and they kind of haunt you. There are things that you wish you had never done, but... If you had never done them, you would have never learned the lessons that you have now. So God wants us to use wisdom in our life to know when we've messed up that we should learn from it and then help others to find their way. And then, this is perhaps one of the greatest lessons. And this is a great one, by the way. God uses difficult people. Can I say it this way? Sometimes God leads difficult people into our life to humble us. Grumbling about that employer that you have. Grumbling about that neighbor that you have beside you that is just impossible to get along with. Grumbling about the roommate in college that you have. Perhaps, and I just say this perhaps, perhaps God places them in our lives to teach us lessons about humility, patience, endurance, and dependence upon him. Now can you imagine Jacob being trapped in the, in the vice of Uncle Laban? I mean, when you sign the contract with Laban, you better believe the attorneys have looked over it, but you are in for it. You're not getting out of it. And old Laban is there looking over Jacob's shoulder every step of the day, every way. And he knows exactly what he's going to do. But did you know that God can use difficult people in our life to teach us humility? Because here's why. You can't change them. That boss that you have, that employee that you have, that is a thorn in your flesh, guarantee you one thing about them. You can't change them. The only thing that you can do is pray. Perhaps that's the greatest thing you can do. Lord, and here's what you pray, not God dash them, God take them away, God let them wreck their car. No, 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 no. You pray this, God, what is it that you are trying to teach me through that person in my life? What is it? I mean, maybe you're in a place where they're trying to cram stuff down your throat that you know that you don't want. However, you get an inroad into their life and you get to see things about them and perhaps 
about their life that you would have never known. Why are they like that? Who has done what to them to make them this way? What? Tell me. And by the way, perhaps God has led them into our life because you are the only Christian that they may see. Now, by the way, how are you going to act? Are, are you going to act like everybody else does? Or perhaps are you going to follow Jesus' advice in being kind to those who you should curse? Instead of being the mean, hateful person, perhaps you're going to give them what they don't deserve, and that's grace. You say, well, do you know how impossible that is? Yes, I do. I've worked with a few of them. I do. And I believe God put me there so that every time I stand here, I can remember people who were impossible to get along with. However, there were times when you could extend little rays of grace to them, and they didn't know what to do with it. When they turned evil against you and you turned good back, they did not know what to do. When they cursed you and you blessed them, they didn't know what to do. And sometimes God allows people like that into our life. Did you know sometimes He doesn't just do it to teach us humility? Sometimes God allows people like that into our life to expose something down in our heart. Maybe it's our pride. You know, you hear people say this all the time. Well, what right does that person have to treat me like that? Well, as somebody asked me one time, who are you that they shouldn't? Who are you that they shouldn't? Have you ever treated anybody that way? Do memories of the way you treated people back in elementary school or middle school or high school or college in your friend groups ever come back and haunt you? I mean, perhaps, you know, you were the bully, or you were in the group with the bully. Were y'all ever like that? I mean, I, I grew up in public school where there were, you talk about cliques. I mean, you were either in or you were out. And I saw people get treated really bad in school. Don't just say it's today. Bullying is not just today, folks. I mean, I saw some terrible stuff. I grew up in McDowell County, West Virginia. That's not a very nice place. Good people there, but not nice. But difficult people can teach us things about ourselves. They can also expose our weaknesses. They can expose our impatience. They can also cause us, and here goes the big one, to depend upon God and God alone. Lord, this person is impossible for me to deal with. If you don't give me your grace to deal with them, I can't do it. Do you know that's what God is waiting for us to say? God is waiting for us to say, I can't deal with them, and if you don't give me the grace to do it, I, I'll blow it. I mean, if you depend on me to do it, God, I'm going to blow it, but you give me the grace. You know what God does? Miraculously, and only as God can do it, He gives us what we need in the time that we need it. Can't explain it. Can't explain it, but I could tell you. I read a story one time of George Whitfield. George Whitfield was a great evangelist. Helped bring one of the great awakenings to the Americas. There was a huckster one time who was standing up on the, on the stage, and he was throwing, uh, how shall I say it, unnice things at Whitfield while he was preaching. And somebody wanted Whitfield to let them go out there and just conk the guy over the head. And Whitfield said, no, let him be. 
Basically, if it weren't for God's grace, I would be standing in His place. Wow. What a lesson. What a lesson. And then, did you know, and get this one by the way, let it, let it soak. Let this one soak. God uses time. Sometimes long periods to form us into the image of what He wants us to be. By the way, in God's boot camp, did you know that this is basically what God decides He wants to use most often? I mean, we live in a day of instantaneous action. In one minute and 30 seconds, you can have popcorn. In less than three minutes, you can have a gas tank that's completely full. I mean, we live in... We, we, we've got to have action. I can send a text, and in one half of a, a blink of an eye, my text goes all the way across the world, and I'm waiting on a response. But did you know, and listen carefully, God doesn't work that way. Moses spent 40 years watering sheep and cleaning up sheep mess before God even allowed him to touch his people. God allowed Jesus our Lord to live 30 plus years as a sinless man on this earth before it was his time to die on a cross. Joseph spent years and years in prison lied about, misunderstood, and absolutely hidden in obscurity. And God never promoted that man until it was his time. And do you know what Jacob was learning? That God could do more out in the middle of nowhere with someone who was mistreating him and he was learning all kinds of lessons about the cruelty and the harshness of life God could do more out there than he could in the limelight and the spotlight. And sometimes we, we have to learn this lesson. Maybe God wants to keep us in that cubicle where nobody sees us and we don't get the glory or the pay raise. We don't get the recognition and the spotlight or the big name. Maybe God wants to keep us right there because that's exactly where he uses us and where He trains us, and where He's happiest with us. Because as, as other leaders tell us, it's not always nice when you're at the top of the ladder. As a matter of fact, it's pretty lonely. And if you read corporate CEOs and the people who have made it to the high peaks of success in life, they're usually the most lonely, miserable people who can't even enjoy life. So folks, while we're going through this crucible of life, you're a teenager and you can't wait until you get your driver's license. Oh, when I was 13, I couldn't wait till I turned 16 to drive. When I was 16, I couldn't wait till I turned 18 and I was an adult. When I was 18, I couldn't wait until I was 21. And then I was a full-grown adult. And when I was 21, I couldn't wait till I was 30. You know why? Because I got tired of people telling me I was so young I didn't know what I was doing. And then all of a sudden you bat your eyes and you're above 50 and you wish you were 21 again. But it doesn't work that way. You wish you were 21 with 50 years of life experience. 
Because you sure would do it all over again. But listen, it doesn't work that way. So whatever crucible you're in, whatever life circumstance God has you in, stop fighting God and, uh, and allow God to teach you lessons right where you are. Because I assure you of one thing. Every hardship, every trial, every difficult person, everything that we do in life, God takes every one of those decisions and those circumstances and he has one major goal in mind for his child. You know what that is? He's making you into the image of Jesus Christ. And oftentimes in life, when the stone chisel has the hammer that thrusts itself upon the chisel and it breaks off the rough and hard edges, sometimes the stonemason has to do that before he can make the beautiful image. You know, the refiner who puts the metal in the pot and puts the fire down on the metal to heat it to such a degree that all the impurity separates off of it. Do you know what they tell us? This is what writers tell us about refining and impurities. They say that they put the heat on it until they see their image reflected in the metal. And that is often what God does in our life. He puts the heat on us until he sees his image by his grace in you. So let him turn the heat. He is making you into something that he wants to make you. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? This morning I want to ask you a question. And here's the question. What is it that God is teaching you through your disappointments in life? What is it that God's teaching you through circumstances that are just testing you for everything that you are? Maybe it's, maybe it's your age. You know, my grandfather used to tell me that the greatest disappointment in his life was when he reached an older age and he had the mind of a 20-year-old and the body of a 90-year-old. He, he had the desire to do it, but he didn't have the strength. And I remember a very wise person telling him, don't waste your latter years wishing. Use them investing. But what is it in our life that has got us drugged down that we think God is not using? And whatever that is, whether it be a person or a circumstance or a life situation, whatever that is this morning, I want you to tell God exactly what it is. And then I want you to ask him this morning to take that and to teach you lessons about how he's making you into Jesus' image. And Father, you know the difficulties in our life. And you know the instances that we have shared from our heart to yours. And now we ask you for your wisdom to give us the grace to endure these circumstances, these trials in our life, to help us to know your presence is with us and that you're taking these problems that we sometimes don't understand and you're using them to form us into the image of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. 
So give us patience and endurance, knowing that you are not in a hurry. You have all of eternity, but you're teaching us lessons of faith and obedience and trust. And that's exactly what we want to do this morning. Trust you with our life, with our circumstances. And so this morning we give those to you, and we do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now maybe you've came to Trinity this morning, and maybe you walked in these doors not knowing what to expect or what to hear. But we believe that you came here for a reason. One of the greatest reasons we exist at Trinity is we're here to point people to Jesus Christ. We believe that Jesus is God, very God, who came to this earth, who lived a sinless life, who died in our place to take our sin debt, to take our full punishment, the wrath that we deserve. He took it upon himself on a cross. And he went to the grave after they killed him, but he rose on the third day to take the penalty of our wrath. And if we, according to God's word, by faith, trust in what he did on the cross for the payment for our sin, he gives us eternal life. The great exchange. He takes our sin, he gives us his righteousness. And this morning, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior for eternal life, I encourage you with every ounce of my being to do that. Trust Him as your Savior this morning. If you have questions about Him, come and see us. Ask us questions about the Bible. That's why we're here. We want to help you. We'll pray for you. We'll do whatever we can. Thank you for coming this morning. May God take His Word. And may He really turn us into His image. Even if it is through hardship and trials. Amen? Amen. Amen.